This is Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Rodrigo Gordillo, President at Resolve Asset Management Global. Rodrigo, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Pierre? Awesome. Joining us today is the one and only Corey Hofstein, Co-Founder and Chief Investment Officer at Boston-based Newfound Research. Corey, welcome back to Raise Your Average. It's great to have you back. I'm Thank excited. You for having and, me. and and yeah. that warm welcome, the one and only. I like that. I'm gonna start putting well, that in my bio. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> All right. I'm glad. Maybe we can put a, a TM next to I'm it. I'm not sure it's a good one and only, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, the one and only, I'll take it. You're certainly original. We, yeah. we strive to be original at least. So, Corey, where do we find you, and and uh, what are you working on these days? You know, it's funny you say you say Boston based. I personally haven't been Boston based for years now. Uh, life has taken me from Boston to Los Angeles to living in Cayman for a bit, and now based in Tampa with my wife. Just uh, okay. had had our first newborn, so that is consuming my life outside of work. Always exciting stuff, but uh, as far as work is concerned, we are really continuing to discuss the narrative, particularly in the post-2022 world, of the role of alternatives in portfolios, their use, and how they can be thoughtfully applied. And I think that discussion, after a decade of sort of irrelevance from a realized return perspective, yeah, institutional allocators, advisors, and individuals. It's a it's a conversation that's at least resonating. Whether they're making material changes to their portfolio yet, I think still yet to be seen. But I think the discussion and the education is there, which is really important. Well, that's that's an eloquent choice of words. Um, irrelevance. I think that's a really nice, quick way to talk about the view on alternatives up until last year. Disappointing right. irrelevance. Yeah. I'm sure there are some, five, you know, four-letter <laughs> words some advisors and investors would choose for some of the alternatives they they put their money into. But uh, I do think when you look at the broad uh, spectrum of alternatives last year relative to both fixed income and equities, not all of them posted positive returns. Some posted exceptionally positive returns, but on average, as a broad category, hedge funds did materially better than stocks and bonds. And I think after a decade of underperforming the wrong benchmark, but the benchmark people were choosing, which was equities or 60-40 portfolio. I think people are coming around to the idea that once again, diversification is a good idea. And I think it's a really basic concept, right? You take a bunch of things that have positive expected returns and you combine them together, you're more certain about the future outcome you have as long as they diversify each other. I think what happened is stocks and bonds did so well in the 2010s because of the type of economic environment it was. People sort of said, we only need two legs to our stool. And then I think what you saw in 2020 was they realized, well, actually, three legs to a stool probably makes sense. Right. And Corey, you, like, when you started in the business was right after the credit crisis, right? So I got I got my start originally in the business uh, in an internship in 2007, started my firm August 2008. So sort of right pre throws of Q4 2008, Q1 2009, um, very heavily focused on quantitative tactical models, which then there is a very strong adoption of post 2009. And, and, and why was that? Like it was it wasn't just a wave, but it was it was like the exact re- opposite of the last decade, right? So yes, 
what was the uptake when you're coming into the business and seeing and saying alternatives and saying tactical? How did be, how did how was the environment with advisors back then versus what it is now? I think tactical in particular really took off for two reasons. Uh, the first was that post 2008, and this is at least my anecdotal experience, there was a strong pushback on anything that was leverage shorting or derivatives. Right there were there were marketing. Um, materials that literally said on them, we don't short, we don't use leverage, we don't use derivatives, because after the credit crisis, those were considered by many to be sort of ticking time bombs. We can discuss why that's really not the case at all, but there was just, a, you know, sort of the pendulum swings, and I think for most people who didn't understand them, they didn't want to go anywhere near them. Yet, people got through 2008 and said, I never want to have that experience again of such a deep, damaging drawdown. How can I try to protect my portfolio? And tactical was a way of saying, look, we're not shorting, we're not using leverage, not using derivatives, but we are making shifts to our stock and bond allocation and incorporating things like cash or maybe gold. That could be a type of diversifier that can hopefully allow us to pivot out of these assets at the right time, avoid those drawdowns, and then pivot back in at the right time. And so you saw tactical as a category, particularly because it did fairly well during 2008 in a slow, prolonged drawdown, just vacuum up billions and billions and billions yeah. post 2008. Yeah. And then unfortunately go on to disappoint for the several years after. Yeah. And I think it was an interesting decade because of course, because it was tactical, a lot of people could back test. You would go all the way back to 2000. And there was a period where if you were long treasuries, long commodities in the early knots, mid knots, and then you were, again, treasuries saving the day in a way, few people remember that in the US, like 20 to 30 year treasury by measure, measured by the um, iShares TLT ticker was up like 35% in 08, right? So it was one of these wonderful decades for tactical where you can look back and say, you never want that again here. And we can show you that maybe even make positive returns during these bear markets. Um, and by the way, by being tactical and diversified across gold, equities, bonds, in a, in a decade where you annualize at zero for equities, for U.S. equities, at least global equities as well, and uh, did slightly better with bonds, um, it was a godsend, right? Now, what happens in the t 2010s is kind of, a different story, but still large diversification, uh, a lower return to risk ratio or higher return to risk ratio, right? Leading, but, but at lower volatility, that was another selling factor. We could do this at half the volatility of equities right. for a lot of the times, right? And so I think that the decade after was one of continuing to provide low volatility, high diversity in a decade where there was only one game in town and that was basically the NASDAQ, right? which flipped, flipped the script and made everybody say, well, I can't, I can't hold these diversifiers anymore. And if it I was could, one of those, like you had to either do this or do that. And, yeah. and you know, I, I don't know that, that experience was, has been pretty rough. I imagine. If I can add one wrinkle that I, a, a nuance that I, I think goes overlooked a little bit when we talk about the history of the way these strategies evolved, I think a huge driver of the adoption of these strategies, at least in the U S was the growth of ETFs. Because right. prior to 2008, and we look, we look today and say well, ETFs are everywhere. They're everything. It's really the default choice at this point. Prior to 2008, that was not the case. Advisors were still predominantly mutual fund based. 
the palette with which you could paint in your portfolio was largely limited. But by 2008, you had a lot of commodities, you had global equity exposure. So all of a sudden, if you wanted to make fast tactical changes in the portfolio, that was something that was possible with an all ETF portfolio, right? You didn't have to trade futures if you wanted to trade Japanese stocks as a basket. You didn't have to trade futures yeah. if you wanted gold. All of a sudden, you had this ETF vehicle with which you could do it, which perfectly coincided in the US again, at least from my perspective, with the growth of these platforms where advisors could subscribe their clients to different model portfolio managers. And those managers could provide you very diversified tactical asset allocation strategies with 5, 10, 15 ETFs in them covering a global basket of asset classes in a way that was not possible the decade prior. Uh, and I think that, again, helped really increase the adoption of this well, type of strategy. I was just looking back at the um, Deutsche Bank Commodity Index, the Invesco Deutsche Bank Commodity Index ETF. And I always, like in my mind, I'm like, no, that's got to go further out. But it's actually 2006 yeah. is when it was launched, right? So yeah, this new technology comes in and we're now, it kind of reads a whole new world of tactical management. Um, and now we can get exposure to nearly everything we want. And again, the, the, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? Because the more, the more diverse assets you get, the more thoughtful you can be about your allocation, the higher the diversity, the lower the volatility, and it's tough to get that return that you want for the, for that, such a small level of volatility, right? So it's, right. it's been one of these, like, this is amazing. Well, we can't use it because I, I need, I, I can't eat diversification. I can't eat a high yeah. sharp if I'm not getting enough absolute return. Um, so what has happened? What wasn't, wasn't the, uh, I mean, like, you, you know, you bring up commodities and I know that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big theme these days, uh, as a diversifier, but. How did, how did, how did the commodities, um, diversifier work out post 2008, nine? Oh, it was abysmal. Yeah. So you had these diversifiers and then they sort of fell I'm flat. I'm looking at right? it right now. So the, yeah. the, the return since launch of Deutsche Bank commodity index is 10% net total, like compound, not annualized yeah. compound. And commodities saw the peak in February, 2011 and had a 75% drawdown until 2020 you know that was after the whole don cox commodity oh, yeah, super Donnie cycle cox, right. super cycle the whole thing <laughs> right right now as a diverse as as a diversifier to your portfolio adding that would have created a much uh a, a much smoother ride right but because right. of the fact that you had to make room for it in your portfolio it led to a lower drawdown, if but but a lower volatility because it, it does act differently than equities and bonds, right? Well, yeah, um, that's been the problem until now, right? I mean, until until recently. So a, yeah. that technology comes in. That technology did what putting using that technology allows it allows investors and and uh, service providers to create diversity and and, uh, and diversify portfolios. But it didn't allow them to do what institutions could do with their, those diversifiers. So, Corey, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what has changed in the landscape in terms of that of technology again that has shifted the tables a little bit and allowed us to, to be more institutional as, as in retail investors. Okay, so hold that thought for a second because I, I did want to introduce Corey. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry man. Just nothing. Uh, nothing. I thought crazy. he was the one and only Just... already. He is the one. No, I thought only, I got but, my introduction. But, 
<laughs> one and only. Yes, that was. Yeah, that's enough for I me. Mean, that's good. Yeah. Okay, so before we get going, uh, let me introduce you. Corey Hofstein is a seasoned finance professional and co-founder of Newfound Research, where he currently serves as chief investment officer. Since the company's inception in 2008, Corey has been instrumental in shaping the firm's quantitative approach to asset management. Corey holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Cornell University, as well as a Master of Science in Computational Finance from Carnegie Mellon University. Leveraging his education and industry experience, Corey has transformed his investment ideas into a systematic quantitative approach that sets newfound research apart from its competitors. So stay tuned. And while the music's playing, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, and leave us your comments because that helps others like you find the show. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Corey, you were, uh, you were saying, how, how did you, uh... I hate hearing my bio. Whenever someone reads my bio, I always think like, sometimes I want to submit a bio. Remember, remember Austin Powers, Dr. Evil talked about his father. He's like, <laughs> he used to call chestnuts lazy, <laughs> said he invented the question mark. Like I want to submit that for my bio one day, see if I can actually get someone to yeah. read it. Um, I also that think whenever someone, funny, whenever someone reads my schooling, I'm like, there's no way I could get into those schools anymore. It is so competitive. Like I clearly got in in an era of just, it must have had a whole batch of real dummies for them to have let me in, but I'm <laughs> glad I skated through and got those degrees. So, so back to Rodrigo's question. And he's modest and, <laughs> and Corey is humble and modest. Well, thank you. As, as most experienced people gonna, in the I'm industry gonna, have um, become. I'm going to clip this <laughs> and send it to my wife. Uh, all right, back to Rodrigo's question, yeah. the, the innovation, right? Because what's, in my opinion, really interesting is the innovation that occurs on the institutional side of the industry differs than the innovation that occurs on the financial advisory and retail side of the industry. In particular, institutions tend to have much more access to sophisticated products. Sophisticated doesn't always mean better, right? but more sophisticated in the sense that there's more complexity, there's more nuance to the way they have to be managed. And one of the things that institutions started adopting as early as the 1980s, but really became very popular in the early 2000s, is this concept called portable alpha. This is something that was really pioneered by PIMCO. And the basic idea here is there's a lot of really interesting alpha strategies. Maybe, maybe long, short equity is an example or managed futures is an example. But to allocate to those alpha strategies, you need to give the managers cash. They need cash as collateral to manage those strategies. And every dollar of cash you give those managers is a dollar that you can't allocate towards your sort of core strategic asset allocation, right? If you are an institution whose policy portfolio is a global 60-40, and you want 20% alternatives, well, you might have to sell some stocks and bonds to make room in your portfolio. What that means is you ultimately have what I like to call the funding problem, which is not only do you want these diversifiers to provide 
positive expected returns and diversify stocks and bonds. But now their hurdle rate is based upon what you funded them with. If you sold a bunch of stocks, you need the long-term expected return of whatever you're allocating to to beat stocks. So you might find this amazing long-short equity manager who can give you 3% alpha year in and year out very consistently. But if you sell stocks to allocate to that manager, you might actually underperform your policy portfolio over the long run if stocks end up delivering 5, 6, 7% annualized. So what did institutions do? Well, institutions realized that there are instruments out there, like futures contracts and swaps that you can get through banks, that allow you to access the core beta of stocks and bonds in a much more capital efficient way. What does that mean? Well, let's say I want $100 of exposure to the S&P 500. Very easy thing to do is take $100 and buy all the stocks or put $100 in the S&P 500 ETF. Or with futures and swaps, I might be able to just put 5 or $10 down as collateral for buying a futures contract where that contract gives me all the gains and losses for a $100 position. If I do that and I have $100, it leaves me with $95 left over to go invest in whatever I want. Now, I need to be careful about how I manage that collateral, that $5, right? If I'm getting $100 of equities, but I'm only posting $5, well, I need to make sure that there's enough buffer liquidity and I'm not going to run out of my, my maintenance margin. But assuming that's all taken care of, this approach allows me to get the underlying stock bond beta I want and still allocate to these interesting alpha sources. And this is exactly what institutions have been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. And this approach has been totally unavailable to the majority of retail investors and financial advisors and even you know smaller institutions who don't get the same access as larger institutions until a couple of years ago where some asset managers started to provide these capital efficient strategies in ETF and fund wrappers. I know that's a lot to digest, so I'll pause there. But the real, you know, we're talking about the, the steps of innovation in the industry. The mutual fund to the ETF wrapper was a big innovation. Once the ETF came out, there's all this proliferation of these different what could be put into an ETF. I think we're we're in a tipping point now where we're starting to think about how things can be combined in an ETF to allow investors to have much more thoughtful asset allocation uh, decisions that they can put into place and, and behave much more like institutions have for the last 30 or 40 years. Well, yeah. I, what do you think is the, uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think, I think the, the early part of our conversation, you, you know, sort of paints the scenario for why investors, advisors alike have been reluctant to put alternatives in their portfolios to, to add diversifiers, uh, whether they're, you know, risk mitigating or enhancers. Um, so there was really no, there was really no impetus. There was no reason, you know, as long as rates were falling and, and, you know, high duration stocks were booming and, and bonds were, you know, rising in value. Why would anybody do that? Right. We, it was a lot, it's a lot simpler. It's the low hanging fruit. Um, so I mean, something had, like, and at the same yeah. time, by the way, so not only you look at the 2010s and you say that was the best decade of realized sharp ratio on, on real terms, not just nominal terms or real terms as well, post-inflation, 
for a 60-40 portfolio, particularly in the U.S., where we just ignore the rest of the world and we think of a 60-40 portfolio being U.S. stocks and bonds, man, that portfolio really crushed it. And at the same time, you had this rapid decline in the cost of a 60-40, right? And most active managers lagged decreasing their fees uh, probably slower than they should have. When you look at the way Vanguard continued to undercut the industry, what that effectively meant is the hurdle rate that active managers had to overcome kept getting higher and higher. Uh, and they kept failing to generate enough alpha to overcome that hurdle rate. Passive kept getting more assets, which drove the cost of passive down, which made mm -hmm. the hurdle rate higher. And so I think you had this like very much self-fulfilling situation in the U.S. of stocks and bonds did well. ETFs made it cheap incredibly tax efficient. You had um, a little bit of a Department of Labor scare mid-2010s where there was a conversation of our advisors going to have to defend higher fee funds, which pushed yeah. people very much into lower fee passive exposures because they didn't want to have to defend higher fee stuff. That ended up not coming into play, but I think it still was a it, oh it was yeah, a it question, certainly changed the the, the, the conversation. The fear is still there. The fear yes. is still there. And so uh, all the, of this yeah, stuff, about, yeah, you know, DOL, all of this right? yeah. uh, DOL, yes, absolutely. So yeah. so all of this stuff sort of um, was swirling around at the same time. It's it's you know in a complex system, can you ever point to one thing and say that was the cause? Absolutely not. But I think when all this stuff was swirling around, you just had this large sea change of pre two thousand eight active fund management to post two thousand eight. You know, everything is a passive ETF exposure, yeah. low cost. If you can't beat the 60-40, you might as well join it. And so this is where kind of things got interesting for our, you and me, Corey, when we were in the middle of 2021, in the face of all of that, you we recognized that trying to talk about alternatives as a, a, a and or solution was over. Like we weren't going to beat that low cost, our labor scare abundant liquidity from the Fed, driving asset prices up, rates going down. Everything's just perfect for that space to try to get them to make room for alternatives with a bad idea. Right? And so we started talking about how do we yes and this problem, right? So, so yeah. I think it was June, 2021, we're both like tired of trying to get people to get rid of their, or reduce their 60, 40 for alternatives. And we you know, you've been running uh, portable alpha strategies for a few years. We've done it from the beginning of our careers as well in the resolve. Um, but what was different, I think, was we saw a lot more out there. A lot more kind of simple, clean cut. For every dollar you give something, whether it's an exchange-traded fund or mutual fund, you get more than a dollar's exposure, which now allows you to yes-and it. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the Twitter discussion that led to one of the first kind of big ETFs that yeah. turned stack. And then how we could use that as like a stepping stone for people to understand what that opens the door for in terms of stacking. Yeah, Rodrigo. And also, I just before, sorry, Corey, before you get started, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, one of the, like, it seems to me like a recurring thing, recurring theme in our conversations has been also, um, you know, advisors, being reluctant to go through uh, changing investment, pol you know, investment policy statements, uh, you know, in a big way, right? There's also like there's so many there's so many roadblocks, barriers to entry for advisors to to contemplate, and and so 
I think the return stacking, um, you know, idea plays very nicely into that because then you sort of eliminate the tracking error fears, right? You, you, you know, you're able to hold on to that, that core, um, you know, that core allocation, uh, core portfolio, traditional portfolio allocation. Um, you don't have to go to your clients and, and scare them, Yep. <laughs> you know? That you're going to make well, these and, wholesale and changes. Ideally, like, I, I, you don't I, I, have to have the the market timing risk, right? If you yeah. are an advisor who suddenly wants to make a shift and include 20% alternatives, again, you have to sell stocks and bonds to do that. So if you're selling stocks and bonds to include alternatives in a major way, all of a sudden you, you are effectively layering this big change, long alternative short stocks yeah. and bonds on the portfolio at a point in time. That's a big market timing decision that I think advisors may not explicitly understand but they intuitively comprehend for sure they they understand there's career risk there and there's real investment risk for their clients rodrigo you know i for all the kind words that were said about me earlier in this interview i think it has to be acknowledged that i spent my entire career trying to run through brick walls selling alternatives mm -hmm. to people who didn't want alternatives i was listening to a recent cliff asness uh, interview. I think it was Masters in Business with Barry Rithholtz. Cliff, for those who don't know, is the co-founder of AQR, one of the most prestigious quantitative asset management firms. And he had this great phrase, and I'll paraphrase it because I won't ever remember his quote exactly, but he basically said there's, there's a big difference between statistical time and behavioral time. The 2010s, when you look at the performance of stocks, bonds, and alternatives, alternatives had a bad decade. Statistically, it's a blip. Right. Mm -hmm. We look at things on 50, 100 year horizons and we say bad decades happen. Right. Stocks had a bad decades in the 2000s. You know, alternatives are allowed to have a bad decade in the 2010s. It doesn't mean they're fundamentally broken. Statistical time, if we measure it that way, it's meaningless. But behaviorally, mm -hmm. a decade might as well be forever. It's impossible for almost anyone to just sit through a decade of underperformance particularly when the thing underperforming is difficult for clients to understand, difficult for advisors to describe, right? Yeah. So for as brilliant as you made me sound earlier, let's acknowledge I spent my entire career trying to run through this brick wall. Until, Rodrigo, you sort of teed that up beautifully, this idea of like capital-efficient funds really started to come more to market. So there was a Twitter conversation between myself and one of the things I love about Twitter, two pseudo-anonymous people. I happen to know who they are, but they choose to be anonymous on Twitter. A gentleman uh, who goes by the handle Economic, and another gentleman who goes by the handle uh, Unrelated Sense, uh, who has unfortunately yeah. since passed away. Uh, really brilliant mind. And the conversation was basically around this idea of what if you had a fund that was a 60-40 portfolio levered up 1.5 times? So 60-40 levered up 1.5 times is, is a 90-60. And the idea here wasn't that a 90-60 portfolio would be something better to invest in than stocks, right? The idea here was, well, if you had a 60-40 investor and you had a 90-60 fund, you could take two-thirds of that investor's money and put it in the fund. Well, two-thirds times 90 equals 60. Two-thirds times the 60 of bonds equals 40. Oh, two-thirds of their money in a 90-60 gives them 60-40. They've got one third of their money left over to invest in whatever they want. So what if they invest in some really interesting diversifying alternative? The implicit, you sort of x-ray what's happening in the portfolio, what they end up with is a 
50% stock exposure, 40% bond exposure, and then an overlay on their portfolio of 33% to whatever that other thing they allocate to is. And there's all sorts of things we could discuss what they could allocate to. And I have strong opinions and I know Rodrigo has strong opinions about what that should be. But the core idea was, man, you give them a turnkey fund that embeds some thoughtful leverage that they can use not as a standalone to outperform, but a way to unlock capital efficiency in their asset allocation. It really allows people to suddenly unlock the benefits of diversification in a way that has largely been unachievable for them for, for decades. Yeah, yeah. new and technology the, 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 leads the, to the, new opportunities. Absolutely. The, but I just want to just clarify the, the notional value of the $67 is 100. Right, exactly. Right? So they're replacing 100% of their 60-40 with $67 of 90-60. And then they've got $33 to stack on top of that. Exactly. Exactly. With diversifiers. Yep. And this is where it comes. Or enhancers. This is where you were just saying to somebody, you're not timing the market. You're not timing when you're taking 33% off the table to, to add. You're creating portfolio real estate to do something with, but you're not taking the timing risk. You, you right. swap out your Vanguard 60-40 with 66% of this ETF. And it's the same outcome. They make the right. same, roughly the same returns. And yeah. in, in, in the paper that Corey and I wrote, um, return stacking strategies for overcoming a low return environment, um, in 2021, we kind of late put those two lines together and we were like, this is the live performance of both one of a hundred percent Vanguard and the other one, 66%, um, uh, this other ETF plus cash and you get the same outcome. So that's, that's it. So now what do you do with that 33%? Well, Whatever you do, you're yes ending the 60-40 problem, right? You're, you're, you get what, what your clients want and what everybody seems to have wanted for a decade, but now you have the opportunity to stack things on top. And that's where the return stacking concept comes in. And, um, and I think, Corey, you kind of ran with it uh, from there, right? I mean, you, already, <laughs> you were already providing model portfolios, but now well, we have a framework to articulate it to investors. I, I should I should fully pause and again I, I really want to dissuade anyone who heard that wonderful introduction about me that I am I am actually smart because what happened is I then was interviewed by Barron's in twenty seventeen in November and I said, This is absolutely the future of ETFs. Capital efficiency is absolutely the future of ETFs. What did I do? Did I launch an ETF on the idea? No. Uh, I know someone else who did, who then raised a billion dollars in it. Uh, what I then did is I went around marketing it under the phrase capital efficiency and portable beta, which are horrible names. Mm -hmm. It was, it wasn't until Rodrigo came up with the name <laughs> return stacking that there was really any meaningful traction to this concept. Uh, so much so that I actually now have people approach me and ask me if I know what return stacking is. So, yeah. Isn't that crazy? you know. Again, I, think I, I stole the lead, didn't I? I'm, I'm hoping I'm dissuading everyone of me having any semblance of, in, of, of intelligence here or doing anything correctly. But yeah, I, I fumbling around in the dark. I've been very lucky f uh, for the last couple of years. So, but Rodrigo mentioned we, we co-authored this paper called Return Stacking with the, with the idea that suddenly it's not just one fund that exists. I've actually put together a master list of about 25 or 30 funds that have come to markets. A market ETF and mutual funds that offer different combinations of stocks, bonds, and interesting alternatives. 
And these 25 or 30 funds, which we hope to continue to grow over time, allow people to put together long-only portfolios of ETFs and mutual funds that from their perspective, they're not having to do anything with leverage. They're not having to manage derivatives. They can just buy mutual funds and ETFs in their portfolio and have all of that professionally managed on their behalf and achieve an asset allocation that is much more in line with with the way, again, institutions have been doing this for decades. And, and much more in line with the way we all learned about diversification in Finance 101. I mean, that, that's, an, that's an interesting thing that I talk about all the time, that we were sold a false bill when we first got into the industry. We're, we're all yeah. educated on the efficient frontier. And now you can be 100% equities or 100% bonds, but there's a sweet spot that gives you kind of the maximum sharp. But if you, if you use leverage or use cash, you'd, you're better off increasing exposure to the portfolio by borrowing and increasing pro rata exposure to bonds and equities or adding cash and decreasing pro rata to bonds and equities because you're, you're in essence increasing or decreasing the most efficient portfolio, the highest return to risk ratio. And if you add other diversifiers, that bullet goes, gets um, much, much better. It goes to the bottom, to the, to the left side and that capital market line goes up. So we were told this and we're like, that's great. Give me the tools. What can I, can I get anything other than bonds and equities? No, no, you can't. It's 2007. You can't do that. Okay. What if I can get some commodities and other stuff? Oh, you, you here it is, but it's a much lower uh, absolute return. Can I use some of that leverage? No, you can't. Right. So now, well, you now can. we can actually. If you want use the leverage, you that, can right? have it. We're just going to charge you like crazy, right? Because the capital yeah. market line was all yeah. based on being able to lever up at the risk free rate, which is which is hard to do. But in some futures markets, you can get a very competitive rate of financing. Treasury markets, you get something very close to what was historically LIBOR, now, now SOFR. You know, if you go to your, I'm not going to name big name brokerage firm, but if you go to your big name brokerage firm and ask to lever up your portfolio two times, nowadays they're going to charge you 13, 14% annualized. And the hurdle right there is impossible to overcome, right? And then you add on top of that, if advisors actually do want to do futures explicitly for their clients, well, again, here in the US, good luck. No, no broker dealer is going to allow that. And then from a compliance department perspective, what a mess and what a mess from an operational perspective going into every advice, you know, individual's account and trying to manage their cash margin. It's a disaster. And so it just even where it was feasible in theory, it became infeasible from a compliance regulatory and operational perspective. Right. And so. Go back to, okay, so we got this paper and we could have, again, we can, you can put, use that 33% and stack anything you want on it. But what we were often discussing is what are the major blind spots that a 60-40 has and understanding that people want to ride yeah. that train until the very end, right? Yes. <laughs> and so how do you ride the train until the very end while minimizing the chances that God forbid there's an inflation uh, thrust that the Fed's not going to be there and both stocks and bonds go down together like it did in the 70s. So, I mean, let's talk about what we decided to write on the paper and why that made sense at the time. Yeah, so I think one of the... But that's it, right? I mean, that's what that's what advisors are going to be asking is, you know, fine, I do this. I, you know, I get this 100%, this 100, you know, $100 of notional exposure. Um, and the and the big question that comes after that is what do you, you know, where, where do I put the other $33? So... Right? So I think it's worth taking a step back. We have talked about 
how well a 60-40 did in the 2010s, I think it's worth asking why. So there's a, yeah. a paper that I love that was written by Auntie Ilmanin and a few other co-authors at AQR called um, Exploring Macroeconomic Sensitivities, How Investments Respond to Different Economic Environments. And in it, what he basically does is he looks at a couple different economic indicators, uh, uh, indicators related to economic growth in the U.S., indicators related to inflation, economic surprise, inflation surprise. And he basically uses those to come up with uh, a sort of a growth up, growth down regime and an inflation up and an inflation down regime. And with that, you can then come up with sort of four quadrants, right? Growth up, inflation up, growth up, inflation down growth down, inflation up, growth down, inflation down. And if you look back historically, by design, what you find going back to the 1960s is each of these environments happens about 25% of the time. If you look at the 2010s, it was absolutely an inflation down environment. 80% of the time, you were either in a growth up inflation down or growth down inflation down. But it was predominantly deflationary. And if you look at stocks and bonds and when they do well, they do well during deflationary environments. Rewind the clock to the decade prior, the 2000s, and you look at the same thing, and it was a growth down, inflation up, and a growth down, inflation down decade. It was, it was driven not by inflation, it was driven by growth being down for the decade, and that's why stocks didn't do well, and actually bonds did pretty well that decade. So I think one of the things we thought about was saying, well, What's very clear when we look at a traditionally allocated 60-40, which at this point is what everyone has converged to, particularly after 2010, is that that portfolio does really, really poorly when you're in a growth down, inflation up environment, right? So if we're going to look to add something to this portfolio that, that we think is going to ultimately benefit an investor, we want something with positive expected returns and is in particular, going to diversify during that sort of market environment. By the way, that sort of market environment is exactly what we saw in 2022. Yeah. Happened to be very prescient with this paper. First time in my life, I First got lucky. First time in our careers, <laughs> we got it right. Yeah, we got it right. And so and now, now's, a, now's a particularly good time to be a 60-40 investor again. Maybe wow. for the last couple months, but as a new sixty forty investor, yeah, you know, yes. not the not not an existing one who went through twenty two, yes, but as but as somebody, if somebody theoretically was entering the market now, now would be you a had time. you had but a good also, run since since November, but I think the broader point here is through this lens, we can not just say okay, what has a low correlation? I think for us, it's it's important to take a step back and say what is the economic driver behind these correlations? Right, yeah. you don't want something with with sort of false diversification that ends up having the same tail risk as equities and bonds. And so, what we looked at when we looked at a broad swath of alternatives and hedge fund trading strategies and different style premia was that for us, managed futures and systematic macro strategies really exhibited not only a low degree of statistical correlation, but they tended to do well during these environments. On average, had positive expected returns, and then historically did well during that growth down inflationary up environment, making it a great third leg of the stool. And so when we put right. together this hypothetical portfolio in the paper, that was really what we focused on. We said adding managed futures, adding systematic macro, next to stocks and bonds as an alternative trading strategy really seems to be a great balance historically 
And oh, by the way, as much as everyone says it did poorly in the 2010s, it still had a positive return. And so while it underperforms stocks and bonds, if you can use it as an overlay, as long as it has positive returns through that decade, it was still contributing something positive to the portfolio. And so for us, even if it's 1%, yeah. Right, the sort Even of if absolute 1%. return nature of it, yeah, over the yeah. long run made it much more attractive. 40, and then you get an extra 1%, which if you had to make room, 20% of room for that in your portfolio, it'd be killer. It'd be tough behaviorally. But all of a sudden, even a 1% performance is kind of paying for a fee or, you know, it's it's less complicated to have discussion on. Right. So that Wait, was it's kind incremental, of right? It, right. It's, it's incremental, exactly. It's an incremental one percent. It's a it's a bump on top of what you would have gotten if you didn't do anything else. Yeah, and and if you happen to be in that environment of inflation up, growth down, then the diversifier that is structurally designed to be able to follow certain trends down as they're going down, i.e., bonds and equities last year and commodities up because the trend is up, then you all of a sudden have good diversifier that is not just giving you 50 basis points or 1%, but maybe giving you significantly more, right? So uh, anyway, Corey, so so go on. We got we got to all the alternatives, found that to be the most accretive, zero, very close to zero correlation of bonds, very close to zero correlation equities, and had that ability to offset the blind spots of each one of those asset classes. Um, and and the, I think that if, you, if people go to returnstacking.live, um, it's for advisors only. You're going to have to kind of request access, but you'll be able to see some of that work there, the paper and what the, I think we launched that in September. November, November, yeah, 2021 went live. We were able to, with some of the, with some of the funds and ETFs with their record track record, take it back to like November, 2020. So it's a short lived, right? It's a short lived concept. These are things that really weren't feasible prior to a few years ago. Yeah. I think 2022 was a great out of sample experience for the way this sort of model behaves highly correlated to a 60 40 because that 60 40 core remained there but the overlay we had in the model we built and by the way i should mention it in that return stacking.live we dialed the model sort of up right we did a 60 percent overlay not just a 33 percent overlay we really wanted to show what could happen if, if you sort of dialed the overlay up to a level that maybe we as professional money managers would be comfortable with not necessarily every client and you saw during 2022 that those managed futures and systematic macro exposures had had such a strong positive return it really helped cut the drawdown that we saw in the 6040 substantially yeah so but it wasn't a perfect solution as we found out right because you had this index that had a combination of mutual funds and etfs it wasn't available to international investors and so this technology is getting exciting but we didn't quite have it right. Like we, there wasn't an offering that could be available to, to most people. And, and in this world where you have exchange traded funds being the dominant technology that people want to access, um, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to the conclusion um, that you did with the new launch. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, you're in your paper. I mean, your paper wasn't prescriptive. It was, no. it was demonstrative, right. right? I mean, it was to demonstrate how something could be put together, but there's so many, I mean, in, you, you only used, you use basically, I think one, the one ETF that has the 9060, you showed examples that yeah. were, um, like anonymous. You showed, you showed no name examples of other strategies that had, you know, increased, uh, like 
over a dollar's notional value in a diversified uh, group of assets. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Similar. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, when we surveyed the landscape at that time, Rodrigo, the funds that were offering capital efficiency were still predominantly mutual funds. So if you look at the composition of that model portfolio that we built, and, and again, unfortunately, only advisors will be able to log in and see that composition, it is predominantly mutual funds. Uh, the mutual fund that I run that provides it, the mutual fund that you run, Rodrigo, that provides it. And there are certain investment platforms and advisors for whom they just will not invest in mutual funds anymore. Right or wrong, that, that's the decision they've decided to make. And I recognize that for insta uh, excuse me, international investors, you know, our friends in Canada, it's very hard for them to buy U.S. mutual funds, but a U.S. listed ETF is something that is much more available. Right. And so one of the things we focused on here at Newfound is bringing these sort of model portfolios to market so that advisors can allocate client assets to them. And one of the requests we got was we want an ETF only version. And we don't want that crazy 60% overlay. We like it, we get it, but behaviorally, it would probably be pretty tough for our clients. Can we, if we have a total portfolio solution, can we dial that down to say 15% where it's still effective, but it's not so much tracking error that it's going to become an issue. And so it's something that we put together. We launched in January, 2022. Uh, we have since raised over a hundred million dollars in the models. But one of the things that thing that's really lacking in the ETF space is sort of a breadth of building block solutions, right? You need different combinations of stocks and bonds and alternative investment strategies in these different capital efficient building block uh, combinations to really be able to bring different thoughtful model portfolios to market. You can do things that are very vanilla, but if you wanted some sort of, you know, all terrain, lever up bond, something like risk parity where commodities are replaced with managed futures, that just becomes very complicated and almost impossible. And so in collaboration with Resolve, we started to say, for us to be able to continue to bring these models to market that people are asking us for, we need to bring some of these building blocks to market. And so in the fall of 2020, uh, we filed to register a couple of ETFs. We have since brought one to market under the brand return stacked. So return stacked ETFs. People can go and, and yeah. view the uh, ETFs that we launched in February this year, and we're very much looking forward to continuing to build out this suite, different, again, combinations of stocks, bonds, and alternative trading strategies, uh, again, so that people can use these as building blocks to build thoughtful, thoughtfully diversified portfolios. Yeah, congratulations, by the way. Thank you very much. That's Yeah, yeah it's exciting times, uh, Corey, and, and, you know, I do think that it's it's one of these things we we talked about a lot at Resolve, especially when we did presentations on ETFs, you know, um, all the parts, but no assembly instructions, right? And so one of the things I think you bring to the table, and you've been doing this for years, is not just, you know, now you're bringing the parts into that, that help you assemble things better for those people participating in your model portfolios, right? And so you have a couple of plat large platforms that are using your model portfolios right now. Uh, in order to provide that extra, that yes and approach. And with these new, um, these kind of new tools where you're going to be able to, to even make a, make a series of model portfolios that are a bit more in tune to the original idea, I guess. Right. So right. I think that's going to be, that's, I don't think there's anybody else doing that specific work. Um, 
that I know of. And so if you guys want to check out, again, it's for advisors, you know, it's a regulatory environment. So if you're an advisor and you want to check it out, go to um, uh, newfoundresearch.com and go to the um, model portfolios, get access and take a look at what what's what the uh, assembly instructions look like. Because very thoughtful, you know, the, the Excel files that you provide are in-depth. You have, you know, the actual allocations, the X-ray allocations, the risk profiles, and you have multiple portfolios. Um, so absolutely, if you are interested in this concept, you have to go take a look at not just the model portfolios, but the literature that Corey's put out in the last few um, few years. Yeah, I appreciate so, that. So Corey, I, I want to dig in into uh, an objection that keeps coming up, okay? Which is, well, number one, isn't leverage um, dangerous, mm. right? So let's let's address that head on. Like, how, is, yeah. is leverage always dangerous? Yeah, so I get this question all the time. Uh, and the thing I like to start by saying is if you look at every major financial catastrophe, pretty much in the history of financial catastrophes, you will find leverage at the crime scene. Yeah. But, but there's a big caveat there. It's almost exclusively concentrated leverage. So what I mean by that is if I say to you, take a portfolio that's one-third stocks, one-third bonds, and one-third managed futures and lever it up 200%, that has an incredibly different risk profile than if you take 100% stocks and lever it up 200%, right? And I think often what happens is the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. We, we see it in our own regulatory environment. It's very hard on many broker-dealer platforms to have levered funds even become available to advisors because they're considered to be such risky propositions. I think leverage to increase concentration is absolutely risky. Leverage to unlock diversification is a very different thing, right? If you look at historically the returns of a uh, 100% equity portfolio versus a 60-40 that's been levered up. 60-40 that's been levered up has historically had the same risk profile as 100% equities, but enhanced returns. Now it's got more leverage embedded, but that leverage is being used to, in theory, introduce a, over the long run, hopefully a diversifying secondary return stream. The more diversifiers you can have, I think the more leverage is palatable. That doesn't mean leverage doesn't come with its own risks. There's a path dependency element that leverage introduces. You need to have a manager who's managing the collateral. But so long as you hire professionals who are watching that every day and making sure that there's appropriate liquidity buffers and, and the, the margin is there, leverage in itself is just a tool. As you pointed out earlier, Rodrigo, every Finance 101 textbook says the solution is to find the most diversified portfolio from a risk-adjusted return perspective, and lever it up. And and again, on paper, that is the answer. I think in practice, we've seen almost every major successful fund include some degree of leverage. Warren Buffett, right? You decompose his returns. He buys high-quality stocks at a discount and levers on 1.6 times. Leverage in and of itself is not a bad thing. Concentrated leverage is normally where people get in trouble. And this is with a 2x or 3x uh, S&P ETFs. Exactly. Can can be dangerous. And yeah. like it can be used as a great tool if used appropriately. But pe people look at that and may have gotten burnt in the past and say, well, that's a that's why leverage is bad. That's, that's I don't want that. I've seen ETFs with leverage. Yeah. That. Particularly and, and this idea of like variance drain, right? People talk about variance drain where 
they understand, oh, if it if it goes down, you know, 20%, it needs to go up 25% to make back. And so these levered ETFs, concentrated levered ETFs, you tend to have this decay over time that can happen. Um, that is not necessarily the case with diversified levered products because that that concentrated leverage, again, doubles or triples the daily moves. When you have a diversified source of leverage, you're not necessarily doubling or tripling the volatility of the underlying product. You can actually yeah. combine different sources of, of return, double the leverage, and, and not necessarily meaningful incre meaningfully increase the volatility at all. Yeah. So, um, guys, is is yes, but the opposite of yes and? Maybe. No, I'd probably say <laughs> probably say no, but is probably the opposite no, of yes you know, and. You know, but. you know, when somebody says yeah, but it's got leverage, and if you have to say yes, but it's this, that, and the other, the word you know, the word but dismisses the yes, doesn't it? I mean. Yeah, in many ways. So yeah, so I, I see what it you is, mean. Maybe no, no, yeah. It is, look, again, I, I like to be very upfront. Leverage introduces its own risks, but used thoughtfully, leverage really helps unlock the benefits yeah. of diversification in a way that's been totally unavailable. The other option today, you know, for a growth investor is extreme concentration. So I think for me, I prefer to take the <clears throat> more diversified approach with leverage than the extreme concentration in equities. So you find you find when when people are, I you know I think we we talked about this with uh, recently in another conversation. Rod was was the uh, I always feel like there's this there's this problem with you know advisors or investors look at alternatives on a standalone basis, and they look at the behavior of the standalone alternative without without looking at it in the context of a portfolio. Um, just like, you know, just a moment ago, Rod, you pointed out that, you know, yeah, commodities in, in 2008, nine on its own was a terrible choice to, you know, lay your bets on. But if you had them in a portfolio with all your other assets uh, as you a stacked, diversifier, if yeah. you stacked, if you got your 60, 40 and you stacked an X amount to DBC or whatever, any commodity basket, at the end of the day, you're still up 10%, right? Yeah. And in the last, from, from, I think it was from the bottom of the, uh, COVID crisis from May, 2020, right. All the way to the middle of, um, June last year, you would have had, I think it's over a hundred percent return on that portion while your equities and bonds were going down, right? So this is just an example of diversity and why yes anding it is important. Yes, yeah. it's leverage, but right, there is a there's a there's a method to this madness. And and listen, leverage in as much as we want to talk about how people are averse to leverage, there's a couple of things. Number one, buy an equity on average, the S&P 500 is actually from a balance sheet perspective already levered 3 to 1. You're already getting right. implicit leverage, right? And then when I look at the alternative sleeves of preference for most advisors today, both in the US, Canada, internationally, what are they? They're private equity, private real estate, and BC. Okay. All of those things are just more of the same. You need positive growth, you need low inflation, but the returns come with a ton of leverage embedded in them, much more than the S&P 500 has, right? 
And so the reason that they were able to put those in there successfully for a decade has been because we have been, that those alternatives have been in the same direction as their 6040, while Lieber. So you can point to that and say, look at that portfolio that has done better than the S&P. And yeah, you know, I, you know, I told you it was going to be accretive to the portfolio. And then what they're mm-hmm. saying is we made more money than the S&P or we made similar money as the S&P, but they took the same risks and they had the same blind spots. And we're seeing today, especially in Canada, what happened to those private real estate, not private real estate, the private credit funds, right? There's a, there's a cascade of closures, um, in the private credits fund. And that's, that's the, that's what happens when rates go up to things that are sensitive to rates going, right? Yeah. But I mean, so, as, so leverage, as leverage used yeah. incorrectly can lead to things like this. Leverage used in diversifiers can lead to a much more stable portfolio. Just ask the, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Just ask the CPP. And then I examine the year-over-year returns. And you have to scratch your head. I'm like, how did they achieve such high double-digit returns for so long? They did it through return stacking. Yeah. Right? That's uh, how they on, an even, on an even simpler level, anyone who's ever bought a house is already personally, you know, familiar with leverage, right? Just in the, you know, having a mortgage, right? It's when, it's when people go out and they buy, you know, 10 homes or 10 properties right. and, and lever themselves up. That's when they get into trouble, but buying, buying your personal home or maybe, and maybe another home is not a crazy use of leverage. It's the difference between owning those properties and, or not at all. Exactly. That's a great, right? that's a great point, right? One house, a portion of your net worth, even Canadians through 08 were able to hold on to those, to, to, to their loans as we went through a bit of a lull and recovered, right? Maybe the Americans that didn't were yeah. the ones that were having two to three homes and, and no money down, right? Ninja loans and all that. But thoughtful leverage used to, to create growth of your wealth is, is absolutely valuable, right? We're, we're accustomed to it. We're already, you know, we're already accustomed to it as consumers. So that's an, an alternative as, as, in, as a, you know, as a complete yeah. tangent. Can I, I actually want your opinion on this. I'm going back to the beginning of my career. I remember how much post 2008, everyone looked at Canada's housing market and said, wow, they really got mm-hmm. it right. You know, the U S is falling apart. Everyone's going bankrupt. And we looked up to our Canadian brethren and said, what a stable, wonderful housing market. Then you look today and you go, man, what happened? <laughs> uh, do you want to know what happened? I actually sat down with, I'm not going to name the bank, but one of the guys that was, uh, had a risk and pr- they were trying to do the same thing that American banks were trying to do. They were pushing hard to do the same thing. And risk was just saying, nope, it's too risky. But they were, they were the losing battle. They were months away from being able to provide the type of ninja loans that exist in the United States, the type of leverage that exists in the United States. And wow. they couldn't in time for the big boom from 2004 to 2007. Fast forward to today, those same risk takers have pushed enough where we have levered up the, the commercial market to the degree that we are. I think we're one of the most indebted per capita consumer nations in the world. right now. So it's just a matter yeah. of, look, if there's money to be made, eventually we'll get there. We just always do things slowly. And that's why we're, not, we're finally here, guys. We did it. <laughs> we did Welcome it. to the top of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of leverage, Corey, one last thing, one objection about leverage is it, this would have been a great strategy when, when rates were at zero. Now we're seeing the borrow go up to four and a half, five percent 
is it even worth it anymore? Right. Yeah. So can you, can you speak to that? Like what should, should institutions to the CPP teachers only use portable alpha and return stacking when rates are low or is there yeah. still value and what type of value exists when rates are high? It's a great question. This hurdle rate question, right? If, if rates are, you know, let's assume we can finance our leverage at the U S short-term T bill rate. We'll call that the risk-free rate. You know, if that's all of a sudden gone from zero to four and a half, wow, that seems like a much higher hurdle rate. Going back to that finance 101 picture you talked about, Rod, with the capital market line and the efficient frontier, I think it's really important to remember that on that y-axis, we're not talking about return, we're talking about excess return, right? That's the return in excess of the risk-free rate, assuming we can lever at the risk-free rate. The question of should we lever up our portfolio today when the risk-free rate is much higher is is sort of irrelevant because if you wouldn't hold stocks at 1.1 or 1.2 times levered, well, you wouldn't hold them at unlevered either, right? Basically, as long as the excess return is positive above the risk-free rate, then then it's a question of just scaling it up and down. But no amount of scaling from zero to five would make it negative, right? So the real question is, do I believe that stocks will outperform the risk-free rate? Okay, if I do, then leverage is okay. Normally, and, and so we can do a lot of hand-waving here, and there's a lot of nuance, we might say we expect the equity risk premium and the bond risk premium to float on top of the risk-free rate. The risk-free rate is zero. The equity risk premium you know, historically might be three or 4%. Okay, we expect stocks to do three or 4%. With the risk-free rate at four, we might now expect stocks to do seven or 8%. There's a tremendous amount of nuance there, and there's a tremendous amount of literature as to whether that's actually true. It seems like the equity risk premium and the bond risk premiums vary over time. But the core point is that the leverage part is sort of irrelevant. If you would hold the asset unlevered, because you think it's going to outperform cash, then adding leverage to it isn't suddenly going to make it underperform, right? It's all about the excess expected returns, and that's all that really matters. A decent amount of nuance, but but at the end of the day, for me, if you're holding a 60-40, you should be just as willing to hold a 90-60. We've all, like the ERP... And it's not a, it's not 100% leverage, it's 50%. Well, it doesn't matter if it's 100, it doesn't matter if it's 500. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. All as right. long as the excess return of the sixty forty is positive, I can just keep levering it up or down. That that number is still positive. Yeah. If it's an expectation okay. that equities, if, if the ex, if the expectation is that equities will underperform cash, then the capitalist system, as it stands right now, falls apart. It's just not a thing that we can we can operate on. Every single financial model, you know, just falls apart. Now, there, this is a temporal thing and like nuance, like Corey said, this is nuanced and it can change depending on the decade. But the the idea here is that what you are, what we are observing in equities and bonds, reserving alternatives is the, the excess return, returns above the risk-free right. rate. So if I lever up 300%, right, that's going to cost me X amount in cash, but the excess return should be higher than cash over, you know, full market cycle then you're going to get whatever return you're going to, you're going to continue to multiply that return. Right. So it's, it's super important to understand that concept. Everything we do in, in our finance books actually, uh, subtracts the risk-free rate 
from the return of your portfolio, we would call right, it. Right. Return minus RF, right? The risk-free rate. So we have, if we assume that that's the case, then leverage is still accretive. It, and it is accretive, period, full stop, across any uh, rate environment that exists. If we, the assumption being that there was the- So are, are you saying it's, is it, it's more of a time problem? It's not a problem at all. Is what it's I'm not saying. even a problem. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, it, and you'll have to have, like, we could get into yeah. opinions as to what's going to happen tomorrow with bonds and equities and, yeah. and systematic I mean, macro. I mean, assume it future, is, a, if, if you assume it is a problem, right? Let's say all of a sudden you say, well, I think stocks are going to underperform cash. Well, then in equilibrium, if people hold that view, they'll sell stocks and buy T-bills, which will drive the yield of T-bills down and the expected return of stocks up as the price goes down and the market will find an equilibrium where stocks are all of a sudden being appropriately compensated for the risk. And that risk should be, that compensation should be in excess, right? Certainly of, of T-bills. Now, again, does that happen perfectly every time? There's all sorts of constraints. And do I believe the market's perfectly efficient? Absolutely not. But we can generally say it's pretty efficient and we wouldn't expect these equilibriums to be violated in an extreme manner for a long period of time. And so generally you should expect bonds to outperform cash, stocks to outperform bonds. And so long as that's the case, you know, it doesn't really matter what the leverage cost is. As long as you can lever at the risk-free rate, right? Again, if you go to your, okay. you know, if the risk-free rate today is four and a half and you go and you look in your brokerage account and to lever up, it's gonna cost you 12, 13%. That's a very different story. Mm -hmm. But if you're using these futures, like treasury futures, mm -hmm. to efficiently get your leverage, historically, the cost of that implied financing is very close to the three-month T-bill or, or your sort of LIBOR SOFA rate. Uh, very, very competitive markets. Uh, you're basically borrowing on, at, on the balance sheet of banks, major banks who are right. competing in these markets. And so you get very, very, very uh, cost-efficient leverage. Yeah. If the takeaway from this uh, has been that people go away and start levering up on margin with their brokerage account, we've done a poor job. I think yes. the takeaway from this should be yeah. there's the new technology are ETFs that are hiring professional derivatives managers to provide as cheap as possible institutional leverage, well-managed with the right uh, risk management with the right allocations to to provide something that's actually of use to retail. You, you won't be able to do this in your traditional or you, it's just now we're not now, now when you're being charged 13%, you know, I don't know if the, um, the ERP is going to be high enough to offset that. the professionally managed is key here. So, okay. So that's the leverage question. Yeah, that's, that's the leverage question. And then Really, it's up to people's imagination right now as to what they can do. There's going to be more product that we're going to try to put out that's going to be useful, I think. And then there's Corey's models that'll help you the the uh, assembly instructions. But you know, by the way, Rodrigo, you know, that was are, not a that was not a really uh, strong sales. We're going to put some product out. I, it will be useful, I think. I have a very strong conviction it'll I'm be so, useful, Rodrigo. Listen, I am so terrified of regulators of anything too positive that I say about. I can at least say I believe it's. I just don't want to be canceled. Helpful. Yeah. Fair. Fair. But um, so 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 I mean, in a nutshell, you have this you have this notional a, a exposure of 100 percent to 60 40 through the example we're talking about, uh, and then that's going to do whatever it does. But let's say hypothetically, 
the 60-40 has a, a 6% return this coming year. And then on top of that, you layered on, let's say, a long short, a long short fund, just right. to keep it simple. And that that long short produced a 3% return. Yep. So you would, yeah, so you would, you would have the incremental 1% return on top of your notional 60-40. So now your total return becomes seven instead of six. Exactly. And, and for the complete, right. complete uh, sort of wonks listening, I think it's important to consider that, right? When you create that 60-40 that's levered up, we talked about the cost of financing is embedded in there. And there, someone's going to raise the flag and say, whoa, whoa, whoa you're, you're ignoring the fact that those are excess returns of, of treasuries. You know, you're not that levered 60-40, even when you decrease the size, isn't going to meet a 60-40. And that's, that's correct. With the exception that when you go to allocate the remaining, the remainder of your portfolio at 33 and you allocate to a fund like Managed Futures, well, that Managed Futures fund is going to allocate that cash to T-bills. So the $33 of that 100 that's getting allocated to the alternative, those alternatives, whether it's a long, short or Managed Futures, whatever they are, are is taking that cash and getting the cash return rate of return, which is offsetting the cost of financing in many ways of... Uh, the treasury futures. And so again, really, you are getting something very, very close to the 6040 with a little bit of wiggle room. And then it's the excess return of the alternatives layered on top. Yeah. And let me add, add to that, because I think advisors in Canada, especially, they understand options better than they do futures, right? But let's, so let's take an, like an example for options. If you are shorting an option in the Canadian S&P TSX 60, what you're in essence getting is you're getting an, an it's kind of a non-linear payoff, but you're going to get a payoff whether you're shorting a call or a put that is either going to mimic what the uh, stock market does on the upside or the downside after they hit that um, uh, the strike price, right? But you don't have to if you if you get that once it goes past the strike price, you're going to get full exposure to that um, to that equity market. And that's going to be your PL is going to show up in your account. But what did you have to buy to get that full exposure? Only a, only a small portion of your portfolio had to go into that put option or call option. The rest remained in cash. Rather, if you're just running, if you're just right. running an option strategy and you x-ray option uh, players, what they have in their portfolio is a portion of line items of options and calls, and the rest is in cash, right? The same way applies to futures, except that we have a linear payoff. That you buy the S and P as an as a line item, it costs you nothing. You have to put up some margin, but if it goes up one percent on the S and P, you get a one percent P and L in your portfolio. Now, you don't have to commit capital right away. What you get is a big chunk, eighty to ninety percent in a managed futures fund that's just in cash. And you know, we're not stupid. We're gonna we're gonna invest that into a laddered short term bond treasury portfolio, right? The safest the safest assets right. and. And the yield right now in those portfolios are four and a half to five. And so you're getting that back, even though you're investing in these underlying. So in, in, I think covered calls are huge in Canada, right? Instead of using cash, uh, they're buying, they're using the stock because they want exposure to the stock yeah. and they're using the covered calls. And that's kind of like an overlay. It's really, they're, they're just, you know, using the stock as collateral for that option contract. So that's, that's a way to understand why it is. Um, cash efficient, why it's useful to have those derivatives in place and how you can make some of that cost back with um, with a ladder bond portfolio. 
Yeah, they, I mean, everything you just said, all every strategy that you just talked about is is you know employing some useful form of leverage or useful amount of leverage, and you know, I, I think I think a lot of investors, a lot of advisors, you know, see or view alternatives as first of all hard to explain in some cases, uh, difficult to explain to their clients, not to each other, um, and secondly. There's a, I think there's also some pervasive idea that, that hedge funds are riskier than they are. And, um, you know, I mean, hedge funds were created for wealthy investors and institutions. They weren't created for mom and pop investors. And the reason they were created was because wealthy investors like to hang on to their wealth. So, so they're explicitly, they're more conservative. What's interesting, Pierre, is right? that the hedge so, funds... So you, you, you take the hedge fund and you stack it on top of your 60-40 as an alternative return enhancer, you're going to get the incremental return over the long term, term because that instrument is structurally built to produce that return or that risk premium, right? And, and so I, I think that's where there seems to be a, a failure... To communicate, yeah, and look, right? the hedge funds that like, make the like headlines, Cohen Luke, <laughs> the hedge funds that make the headlines are the ones that are using concentrated leverage and pull up. The hedge funds that have been around for decades, um, those are the ones that are, you know, let's talk long short hedge funds that are providing two hundred to three hundred basis points of mm -hmm. alpha. You know, institutions aren't making room in their portfolio for an extra two to three hundred basis points. They are borrowing at, at institutional levels and stacking it on top. That's what's happening. Right. Uh, Jason Josefiak of uh, Makita had a, uh, I don't know if it was a paper or a report that talked about, you know, yeah, how we had, we, yeah, we, we had featured on, it. Right? And, yeah. and he just, you, you had him on it. We're, we're yeah. He's like, this, this is what yeah. you can expect from your alpha portfolio, two to 103 basis points. Why are we taking concentration risk for LDI? We could use, you just stack that thing on top and be non correlated and be done with it. Right. Yeah. So this is the, 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 people, the rich people that want to maintain their wealth, they're not going out and, and, and investing in 30 vol hedge fund managers. They're going out and investing in low volatility, non-correlated hedge right. funds. And, and they're, they're using capital efficiency. Now, this is very wealthy individuals and these are very wealthy pension plans. Now, everybody can have access to it with thoughtful implementation. Very exciting times. Very exciting. Yeah. I'm so glad we had this conversation. I, I, uh, I'm not not just glad. I'm excited about it because I think it's the perfect. It's sort of you know the perfect time for advisors to. I was going to say another another element of that you know we didn't even you know in terms of of making that shift. It's a great. It's it's still a fairly decent time to do some tax loss selling, tax loss harvesting, and and make the lateral move from one sixty forty incarnation. To the other, a good point. And, absolutely, about that, right. And the thing I always say to advisors who, or any individual who is is contemplating making this change, is it never has to be an all at once thing, right? We talked earlier when you make these big changes, they are inherently market timing decisions. Um, yeah, you know, anyone who went to put in managed futures didn't get any of the upside last year, and then put it in a month and a half ago has had a very bad month and a half, right? You can make these decisions incrementally over time. Right. And that can really help smooth out the risk of timing that change. And I know that's right. less efficient for advisors who are trying to make these changes for their clients. But, you know, small incremental changes over the next four quarters of introducing these concepts can 
tee them, tee up their portfolio plan, hopefully for superior outcomes over the next 20, 30 years without inviting a significant amount of timing risk in the short term. And just to finish it off, because I do have to hop in a couple of minutes, yeah. I think, I think we advisors who are listening to this need to take this seriously. I know it, it may have seemed a little complicated and there's a, you know, some addition that we need to do that doesn't make sense. Does it not take your time to learn about this? This is finance 101. We just have to go back to the roots. We, we were not, we were educated on it so long ago and weren't able to do it that we forgot what we already knew. Let's relearn it and revolutionize the way you manage your, your wealth book. I mean, you can, you can differentiate yourself so much now in ways that you couldn't two years ago. You just have to give it the time. It's actually not that difficult. Just give it the time. Let it seep in. There's a, there's a ton of podcasts that, that Corey and I have done on the topic. If you're an audible listener, there's a ton of the research that we've written on it and there's, you know, the websites that make it all uh, much more approachable. So I urge you so, to not give up on this concept if you thought it was a bit too much. Can they reach you, either one of you to talk about this more through LinkedIn? Absolutely. LinkedIn. Absolutely. Would you, Twitter, I mean, are you okay with that? <laughs> please do LinkedIn, Twitter, go to our websites. <laughs> Info at yeah. thinknewfound.com. You can get me directly on LinkedIn or Twitter. I encourage you. Return stack ETF so you can fill out a contact form there. Both of our websites yeah. have contact forms. Uh, you will probably most likely hear from us directly. Uh, we're very active in engaging <laughs> with the advisor community because education yeah. is, is absolutely paramount to us. The last thing I'll add is that, you know, I, Rodrigo mentioned this is so important for advisors to understand. Almost every advisor I work with has some sort of active risk budget, right? They have a 60-40 and then they don't just buy passive equities and passive bonds. They buy some sort of value tilt or quality tilt in their equities, dividend stocks lately, always. And there's some tracking error there. And what I would encourage them to think about is if you're going to have that tracking error, what is the most powerful application of it? Are you potentially better off actually staying passive in a 60-40 in an environment like Competing for alpha in stocks is so very difficult. Are you not better off potentially just having passive 60-40 and having an overlay of something like managed futures that can be a diversifier and historically provide excess returns and is going to have some of that tracking error budget versus you know taking these active tilts in stocks and bonds? I think if reframing it that way as well, I think is critical. It's not an either or, right? These are these are and mm -hmm. discussions we can have, and we love to get our hands dirty with advisors and consulting. I consult on model portfolio discussions all the time. Uh, my team and I know the folks at Resolve do as well. So would absolutely love to engage with anyone who has questions about any of this. Yep, and you guys know where to reach us as well, investresolve.com. And uh, Corey on Twitter is very active at yeah. Shofstein is his handle. Mine is Rod Gordillo <laughs> P because, you know, we had to make it difficult. Um, yeah. Anyways, well, it'll be in the show yeah, notes. It'll be, it'll be right under, right underneath this video. Corey, thank you so much. Really so, appreciate your time as really always. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Yeah. Thank Insightful. you. Insightful. And uh, Corey, great discussion. Thank you. Rod, good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you, Pierre. I have to like literally run right now. Yeah. My wife right. is knocking down the door. Mm -hmm.